We've been looking at the advent of 18th century empiricism, and I mentioned in passing that the world in which we live today is filled with people that have a profound confidence in what can be known through the senses. It's the show me generation. If I can't taste it, touch it, smell it, and so on, then I'm not going to believe that it exists. And as I mentioned, the disadvantage of empiricism is that it rests so heavily on the process of induction that can never acquire an exhaustive amount of data upon which to make final judgments, that it has a built-in limitation with respect to philosophical certainty. And though when we stand back and look at the 18th century reaction against the speculative rationalists of the 17th century, we have a tendency to think, oh, finally science wins over all this rational speculation and we're getting down to common sense, hardcore reality so that we now can be confident in the knowledge that we have. What actually was taking place in the 18th century with this beginning of optimism of coming to greater and greater certainty of truth of the objective world was in many respects a runaway train of skepticism. We will see fairly soon that in fact what happened in the 18th century with this runaway train, that it did end in complete skepticism, so that at the end of the track, the question was being asked whether science was possible at all. And this all has to do with this simple little distinction I looked at in our last session between primary and secondary qualities. Now, Bishop Barclay, who I said was concerned to leave room for God in the universe, and who sometimes is ridiculed in our age as being extreme in his views of things, is the one who first really made popular an expression that if you've never heard of Barclay and never heard of his idealism or his form of empiricism, you still would have heard this idea. When you were children in school, the question was posed before you, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody is there to hear it fall, does it make any noise? Does it make any sound? Did you hear that poser when you were in school? My modern day contemporary version of that is that if a man speaks in a room and a woman is not there to hear him, is he still wrong? <laughs> That's the modern version. But you get the picture that if the tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, is there any sound? Now, the question that is inherent in that simple poser is the question, is sound a primary quality or a secondary quality? Is sound something that exists apart from someone's hearing it? Or is sound just as important upon the ear as color is upon the eye to be real? Now, of course, in modern days, we measure sound by physically measuring the wavelengths that are there. And 
we could say that in all probability the wavelengths would still be set in motion by the falling of the tree, whether anybody's there to hear it or not. But we're not looking at this through the eyes now of 20th century physicists. We're looking at it through the eyes and the ears of 18th century philosophers. Well, it was Bishop Berkeley who coined a Latin phrase that has become important in the history of philosophy, and that is the phrase, esse est percipi. Esse est percipi, which means, in translation, to be is to be perceived. To be is to be perceived. So if you would say to Bishop Barclay, is there a sound in the forest if there is no one there to hear the tree fall? Well, he would answer that question two different ways. On the one hand, he would say, that if there's absolutely no one who perceives that tree falling, there would not be a sound. In fact, there wouldn't even be a tree if we take this principle to its fullest conclusion. If to even be is to be perceived, that means that if it's not perceived, it doesn't exist. Not only the sound would disappear, but the tree would disappear, and if there were no one there to perceive the forest, the forest would disappear. Or to take it to its ultimate conclusion, not only the consequences of material things would disappear, but matter itself would disappear, because matter itself is dependent upon someone's perception for its very being. Aha! We're saying that what this man is concerned about is to stop the tide of materialism and to stop the tide of atheism. Now, some people assume that, therefore, what Barclay was saying was that matter doesn't exist at all, the tree doesn't exist, the sound doesn't exist, you don't exist, nothing exists, and everything is an illusion. Now, there are those popular readers of Barclay who have come to the conclusion that this guy was just spinning out nonsense and talking about everything is an illusion. No, no, no. Barclay believed in real trees. And Barclay believed in real sound. But he said there can't be being without perception. Remember I said that he would answer the question about the sound in the forest two different ways. On the one hand, if you would say to him, if no one perceives the sound, would there be any sound? He'd say, no. But on the other hand, he would say, if you aren't there and I am not there, and nobody else in this world is there to hear that sound, there would still be sound because it would be heard by God. God, in this case, in simple terms, could be called the great perceiver, by whose perception reality holds together. And without his knowledge, 
the idea of things actually being in the mind of God, nothing would possibly or could possibly be. Now, he is not a rationalist with respect to how we approach the external world. That's why he's usually considered one of the 18th century empiricists. But he's an empiricist of a very different stripe. He's a throwback, if you will, to Plato and to Augustine, where reality is ultimately in the mind of God. Because nothing can be apart from God's idea of things. So that if God would quit thinking about you, you would disappear. If God would stop thinking about trees in the forest, they would evaporate. You see, what he's doing in an 18th century way is going back to the biblical principle, in him we live and move and have our being. So that unless God is sustaining his creation by his knowledge of the creation, the creation would pass out of existence. So what's going on here is that he is trying to get away from any view of matter or of the universe or of the world that sees the world existing independent from God. Not only is the universe, according to Barclay, dependent upon the work of God's creation for its existence, but it is dependent upon God for its moment-by-moment continuity of existence, which is consistent with the classical biblical doctrine of the providence of God that says that not only does God create the world, but by the power of His own being, He sustains the world, and without His sustaining it, it would pass out of existence. So now, God is not just simply important to science and important to reality. He's absolutely essential and necessary to reality. So, when he comes to the question of defining truth, remember, to be is to be perceived, you recall that John Locke gave us the correspondence theory of truth. Remember, truth is defined by that which corresponds to reality. Now, Barclay says, according to whose perception of reality? Locke said that all things have primary and secondary qualities. And the secondary qualities are those ones added by the perceiver and are not inherent in the objective world, like the blueness in Roger's shirt. Now, it's that distinction in Locke that Barclay challenges. He says that all qualities of matter are secondary. Even extension itself is a secondary quality that requires a perceiver for it to be. And the problem that we have is that no one has ever perceived matter. 
you perceive the qualities of matter. And we have deduced from these external qualities that there is something producing these external qualities, and those external qualities are produced by this mysterious substratum that we call matter. But what's the matter with matter here, if you're an empiricist? Well, remember, your perceptions are only limited to outward appearances. And with our naked powers of perception, we never penetrate to the very essence of things. We never get beyond the accidents of St. Thomas's substance and penetrate to substance. That is to say, we never have a direct perception of essences or of being. All that we know, we know through external stimuli, external sensations, external perceptions. Even the very idea of extension is an idea that we have in our minds. As we observe something and we see that it has shape and size and so on, texture, he would say, that's secondary too. That's still external to the essence of things itself. In other words, in simple terms, what he's simply doing here is reminding us of the difference between metaphysics and physics. Through the senses, the only realm we can grasp is the physical realm. That which lies under it or behind it or beyond it is something we never directly perceive. We don't perceive the essence of a thing, only the external qualities from which we deduce, or using Locke's terminology, abstract, combine, and relate these ideas that we have that have been given rise to by our perceptions of these various qualities. We see the blue, we see the material, we see the shape and the texture of a shirt, and we come up with an idea of shirtness, but nobody's ever perceived shirtness. The senses cannot get beyond the external realm of physics to probe metaphysics. And that's one of the reasons in modern theoretical thought, people want to keep the departments of theology or philosophy distantly removed from science. And says science is restricted in its theater or sphere of investigation, back to what Plato said, to the phenomena. And what are the phenomena? The outward appearances of things. And even if you get a telescope that magnifies your perceptive power of distances a million times, or a microscope that magnifies your perception of small things a million times, you still haven't got beyond the realm of perceptions. The perceptions are just that more discreet and more discerning than what you had before. Let me see if it's like stripping off the layers of an onion. 
you know, you strip off the top level and you say, oh, there's more to this onion than I saw before I stripped the first layer off. Now I can see to the second layer. But how do I know that the second layer is there? The same way I knew the first layer was there, by perceiving it. Then I strip that away, or I get a more powerful microscope that takes me down to the third layer of the onion. But I'm still perceiving something. It's just smaller or deeper behind what I had seen initially. But there's no point at which I get beyond my perceptions. And so that's what Barclay's critique of Locke was. He said all qualities in the final analysis are secondary. And so, in a sense, he exploded this very important distinction that Locke made between primary and secondary qualities because Barclay is trying to say that we're limited simply to the external qualities. And if the essence is going to be there and I can't perceive it, then either it isn't there and it's an illusion or somebody can perceive it that can perceive more than I can perceive, namely God. And so God, the mind of God, the transcendent being of God becomes a philosophical necessity not only for the existence of ideas, but for the existence of matter itself, for the existence of anything itself. There has to be a substratum but that substratum we can't perceive. And if knowledge is all based upon sense perception, then that drives us relentlessly to the skepticism that we're left with if all we have are the senses and the senses can't penetrate essences, then all we have are appearances. And the scientist as well as the philosopher is now rudely ushered right back into the depths of Plato's cave. Now, I said that for John Locke, the definition of truth is truth is that which corresponds to reality. But if you perceive reality different from how I perceive reality, can there be such a thing as objective reality? If what is real is dependent upon my perception of it, or your perception of it, and those perceptions are different, we can't really talk anymore about objective reality. We're now forced to the subjectivism and relativism that is so pervasive in our culture today. And so, Barclay makes a modification to the correspondence theory of Locke. His definition of truth is, truth is that which corresponds to reality as it is perceived by God. Truth is that which corresponds to reality as it is perceived by God. Remember I said that God is the great perceiver, and His perception of reality is absolutely perfect because He is the author of it. He is the creator of it, and everything that is out there is a manifestation of something that first is an idea in the mind of God. And without God's understanding of it, it couldn't be at all. So do you see how this empiricist is driving us back to a new kind of realism that sees the physical world as an extension 
of God's own thought, without which it couldn't possibly be. So to try to construct a science of the universe without God, according to Barclay, is a fool's errand. Because without the God hypothesis, all science will end in illusion and or skepticism. Because science can never take us to the level of ultimate reality. And if we can't get in the door of ultimate reality, we can't get to the level of objective truth. And if you can't get to objective truth, the only option is subjectivism and relativism and skepticism. Now, as I said, Barclay jumps in the cab of the skepticism of the earlier type of empiricism and starts it going down the track. And I said the train's a runaway train. Well, it doesn't run away until Barclay's kicked out of the cabin, and the new engineer is David Hume, whom we might call the king of the skeptics. It was Hume's critique of his predecessors that took empiricism to what is called its graveyard and brought a supreme crisis of knowledge, philosophical and scientific. When Hume was done, the question was, can we know anything at all about anything. And that's what we'll take up in our next lecture.